Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. This is a podcast in which we explore an issue that is unfolding somewhere in the world and we break it down and we explain, well, not me necessarily, I do not have that good a knowledge <laughs> or history behind me, but Dr. Keith Suited certainly does, an expert in the field, a commentator for decades in Australian media on international relations and issues and politics, three PhDs, and my name's Kate Mack and we work together and we have for, for a number of years now on television and radio and obviously this podcast. And so, and often because you're talking to me, because I don't know a lot of this stuff. So (laughs) hopefully I can throw some questions in there that may answer some of our listeners' questions. What are we doing talking about scary things every week? (laughs) Quite confronting. World War Three. World War Three. And how close it is. uh, This is an article by Robert Hunsaika called The Final 100 Seconds, which graphic, great. (laughs) (laughs) So never before this year, 2020, has the world-famous doomsday clock registered only 100 seconds to midnight. So the doomsday clock is in the lobby of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists at the University of Chicago. So the University of Chicago in World War II was one of the locations which helped the development of the atomic bombs that were dropped 75 years ago. It's a huge amount of attention to the 75th anniversary of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I think we need to look at that, but that, that's a subject for a separate, more historically focused talk. This has been an announcement made in the last um, few weeks that we are now 100 seconds to midnight, midnight being World War Three and nuclear war. So the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists was written by atomic scientists, some of whom were at the University of Chicago, who, who in 1945 said, my word, what have we done? We have created a completely new type of weapon system. So if you read the memoirs of military leaders before 1945, their consistent complaint, whether it's Julius Caesar or the Duke of Wellington, is always, I don't have enough firepower. Whether it's arrows or chariots, uh, muskets, tanks, aircraft, I don't have enough firepower. Suddenly that problem was solved in August 1945 because at that point an armed group like the United States then had enough power to destroy an entire city. That was simply the beginning. Now the Hiroshima Day explosion is so small we don't even include those types of bombs in our nuclear negotiations. They're just loose change, so to speak. So it changed the whole nature of how we thought about warfare. So instead of accumulating more and more weaponry, you just simply acquired nuclear weapons and just simply said to your opponent, you attack us, we will destroy you, and we know you will destroy us. So it's mutually assured destruction, MAD. You've got to admit the American Pentagon has got a sense of humour, a macabre (laughs) sense of humour. So we're in a world of mad, mutually assured destruction. So the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists was drawn up by people who are concerned about the rise of nuclear weapons in international politics. That's been going now for 73 years. And the safest setting was at 17 minutes to midnight in 1991. So in 1991, if you remember, the Soviet Union had collapsed. President Clinton was committed to what he called the peace dividend, which is that they would reduce US military expenditure and put more military expenditure into 
civilian use. So that was the best time. So if you're alive in 1991, congratulations, you won the lottery prize. We've had a few difficulties ever since then and we're now moved from 17 minutes down to 100 seconds. So we're now thinking in terms of seconds, not minutes now. And the uh, argument is that the doomsday clock is uh, recognised internationally as an SOS of impending catastrophe, save our souls of impending catastrophe. And so what they, what they did when they unveiled the clock uh, in June to update it, they announced that this is, we're only 100 seconds away now. What they've also done is to say the United States has not only got problems with nuclear atomic bomb enthusiasts, but also climate change deniers. So what is interesting is the way in which the Trump administration, if you go back to 2016, one of the reasons why Donald Trump did well was that he exploited the sense of combat fatigue amongst Americans. They, they had spent all this blood and treasure on wars in the Middle East and Afghanistan, etc., and got so little to show for it. And so he was able to appeal to the military vote by saying, I'm not going to send you into, into any more wars. And so far, he has pretty well honoured that promise. We thought he might have gone to war in Venezuela. He's destabilising the regime, but hasn't sent in any American troops. He has confronted Iran, but we don't yet have a war. Now, whether he'll spring a war on us in October... because distraction. Uh, yep, yeah, the October surprise, as we get every four years in American politics. Uh, it's a way that you can help uh, get your side re-elected. You put on as an, what's called the October surprise. Now, whether or not Trump will do that with a sudden war against Iran, interestingly... Iran also knows American politics and is not doing anything to be lulled into making itself vulnerable to a United mm. States attack in yep. October. So it may well be that Trump will, by November, have honoured his promise not to have embarked on any more wars. Remember, Bush went into Iraq and Afghanistan. Obama went into Libya and Syria. They've all turned out to be disasters. Not one of them has been a success story. So Trump has honoured his promise from that point of view. But what I find fascinating is that if he's okay, he's, he's pulling Americans out of these wars or trying to, he's not doing too well because the military-industrial complex wants to remain fighting in Afghanistan. And the Taliban are also being very difficult. You may have seen overnight, we had this bit on uh, YouTube, this um, young Afghani girl whose parents were killed by the Taliban. So she picked up her parents' rifle and fired back at the Taliban and killed them. Brilliant TV, brilliant did TV. Did not. Absolutely. I'm that up. Yeah. Which part of uh, Afghanistan? This was um, near Orozgan. So you'd be able to find this uh, teenager okay. who is shooting back against the Taliban. So it's a reminder the Taliban remain as brutal as ever. What they really ought to be doing to get the Americans out is not conducting any more operations, just let the Americans get out with a sense of of dignity. Mm. But the Taliban won't do that. They want to rub the American noses in it. We have beaten you. And Trump, of course, is now divided as to whether or not he should pull out of Afghanistan because it would admit having to defeat, be, be an American president who presides it over defeat. That's why Obama went for eight years extending war in <laughs> Afghanistan. He did not want to be known as the president who lost in Afghanistan. So he just kept the struggle going. So what we see then is... Um, the way in which Trump is somewhat divided over what should be done. But for me, what is interesting is that 
okay, if Trump's going to do the right, in my view, the right thing, get out of a lot of these overseas conflicts, you don't need to spend so much money on defence. And instead you can spend the money on, say, infrastructure. But that, that's what he, that's where he spends his money. Like, that's important to him. And he's been quite open about the fact he's spending money on bolstering their army. Exactly. And weapons. But what are you going to do? You're going to have heavily armed people who, who have no form of deployment because mm. he doesn't want to send them into battle because he doesn't want to risk having Americans killed. It's a very weird, inconsistent situation. And this article points out the whole problem now that Trump wants to resume nuclear weapon testing, right? So we have a treaty against nuclear weapon testing. He wants now to reopen it at a time when people are now doing research on the effects of nuclear weapon testing, leaving aside the whole issue of triggering a new arms race with with Russia, Mm. which is dying to get into a new arms race with the United States, a way of being able to boost its international status even though it's a a military state built on top of of an economic graveyard, but it would be good for Putin to be able to say, I'm now challenging the Americans in a nuclear arms race. But what intrigues me is what we now know about the long-term effects of radiation being conducted by nuclear tests. Don't don't forget, we've had nuclear tests conducted in this country. Yeah, that's right. And also, remember just the the hoo-ha about the um, the French doing tests in... in the South Pacific. That's right. Yeah. So... If you look at, at what's happened in the United States, that from 1951 to 1963, which is when we get the, the test ban treaty, 1951 to 1963, there are a lot of about above-ground atomic tests in Nevada. One Hollywood movie was actually filmed on a test site, including John Wayne and a number of others, who have all died of cancer. And so we've now got, according to this article, US nuclear testing killed hundreds of thousands of people previously not accounted for. So we are actually getting better at identifying how people die and get poisoned through all the radioactive waste which is put into the atmosphere. And so Trump wants to resume the nuclear weapon testing. And so this has been the worry for the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists because they are saying that the doomsday clock was designed to warn the public about how close we are to destroying our world with dangerous technologies of our own making. The final 100 seconds doesn't leave much room for error. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Suter. We're talking about World War Three and the potential for it and how and how likely it is. And the doomsday clock, which if you're not familiar with, is a clock that pretty much dictates the end of the world <laughs> based on <laughs> nuclear yep. um, ambitions of certain countries and, and activity in that area. Uh, is it the closest it's ever been to midnight? Yep, it is. At the yep. moment. Because it, it was now. about a year or two ago as well, I believe. That's right. A few yeah. years ago. Um, so that's a little bit of a worry, what you just said before the break then, Keith. <laughs> <laughs> So it means no no room for error. So it means we have to rely on countries to do the right thing and leaders to exercise diplomacy. Exactly it. And, of course, Trump is saying that he wants to resume the nuclear testing, although he's also in favour of having a new um, reductions, arms reductions treaty. But he says what he wants to do is that he wants China to be included. Now, at the moment, the treaty is between the United States and Russia because between them, they have 90% of the world's nuclear weapons. Trump is now saying, ah, but we've got to include China. And China is saying, yeah, but we're not in your league. 
right? The other 10% of the world's nuclear weapons are held by the British, the French, the Chinese, Indians, Pakistanis and Israelis. So China is saying, we're not in your league. Don't include us in your negotiations. You two, the United States and Russia, are the two countries that should be negotiating a reduction treaty. Um, I might just give you some figures here. This is from the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. It, the Russia has 6,375 nuclear warheads. The United States has 5,800. China only has 320. France, 290. And the UK, 215. So there's a huge disparity between the top two and the rest of the nuclear states. You've also got to throw in there, of course, at some point, Israel, North Korea, India, Pakistan. So what we're looking at then is is that the United States is saying we want to pull out of the current treaty, we will continue to develop our nuclear weapons, but we may be willing to negotiate with Russia and China if China joins in. And China is saying we're not in your league. Does China express interest in developing more weapons or they're not really interested in that sort of... Well, their argument is that they're going to take over the world economically. Mm. They're very smart operators, which is, by the way, how the United States got into its position of dominance. You know, if you look back at the uh, end of the American Civil War, which was 1865, from that period onwards, America really demilitarised itself. It has a history of neutrality and demilitarisation. It's against large standing armies. That's why you have a right to bear arms, because you don't have a large standing army to protect you. Instead, anybody invading the United States will get shot by a Minuteman carrying a musket. <laughs> that was the reasoning. Mm. Then you get the American Civil War, uh, the single most destructive war in American history, 1861 to 1865. After 1865, soldiers on both sides are stood down. Some are retained to um, help with the exploration of the western side of the United States. Um so you get the U.S. cavalry, et cetera, and fighting the Indian Wars, which they've been doing, of course, for several hundred years. Um, World War I, very briefly, they got involved in that war right at the end. And then at World War II, they got involved. But uh, what Churchill wanted from the Americans was not so much American military personnel as the military, uh, as the civilian engineering know-how. And th- that's what was so special about America's contribution to World War II. Not the quality of their generals, which I think were inferior to the British, but the the fact is they had good factories. They mobilised the men, they sent them into battle, and the women were then mobilised to work in the factories, the the legend of Rosie the Riveter. All of that arose. That was Barack Obama's mother-in-law was a riveter. In other words, women who left home to go to work in the factory. So that was the industrial muscle that the United States had, which counted against Germany and Japan in the end. So America finished the war as the number one economic superpower. It, it over, Britain was bankrupt. The other European countries were all broke. So the United States was the number one economic superpower. But what has happened is that it's then spent more and more money on military matters and so China's now on the rise, but not in spending money on the military so much, it's just simply spending it on factories mm. and the Belt and Road Initiative. It is reshaping the global economy with China at the middle of that economy. And so the United States is still spending money on military equipment, etc., but it's being outflanked by the Chinese who just want to go around making a deal with everyone.
It's fascinating. But will it lead to a war? Well, uh, that's the way we've got. We've got 100 seconds to midnight. It's very easy for accidents to happen. We're still arguing over how World War I started. You know, they've got conflicting theories about World War I, so we still haven't sorted out how that occurred. So countries can slide into war through a series of errors, and before you know it, you're at war. And this time, of course, it's with nuclear weapons, which makes errors by diplomats and politicians even more fatal than in the old days. So what are we hinging this uh, likelihood of world war on? Well, obviously some sort of nuclear miscalculation. That is the worry that we've all got. And the more you deploy your forces around the world, the greater the risk is of a nuclear confrontation. So that is, that is why the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists is warning us that we have to be very careful about how we are deploying our military forces around the world and are obviously encouraging us to reduce the nuclear weapons. What America needs at the moment is a cure for the corona disaster, not more nuclear weapons. And the much of the same could be said about Russia or, for that matter, China. Dr Keith, as always, enlightening. Thank you. And somewhat scary. <laughs> Global Truths was presented by Dr Keith Souter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Matt Dwyer. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.